some more time. But let me just give you the verses before it for some context. Again, remember, this is uh, the Apostle Paul, um, and he's a church planner. He planted the church in Ephesus, and he is writing a letter to his disciple and the pastor there in Ephesus, Timothy. And so this first chapter really is kind of the introduction. Um, He talks about himself in verse 12. This is how he refers to himself. I thank him, he's talking about God, who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Again, that's code in Timothy for this is uh, the canon of truth. This is uh, the faith. This is the truth that you must hold on to. Sayings like this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So that is Paul talking about himself. And and in short, he is saying, God rescued me and saved me because that's what Jesus came to do. He came to save sinners. And in short, he is saying, Timothy, if he can save me, if he saved me, the only reason he saved me is because it's kind of like him proving himself. I'll show you. I'll save that guy. Not the good guy, but the evil guy. Not the guy that's really seeking and searching after me, but the guy who is blaspheming me, forcing other people to blaspheme me. I am going to save him. I'm going to rescue him. And and because of that, Paul being self-aware of that great work, that's what he says. I was overwhelmed by grace and mercy. So remember, that's how he sees himself. Right? And so what we're going to see in verses 18 to 20 is really this call to arms for Timothy. He's basically saying, Timothy, you've got to choose sides. Verse 18, this charge... Y'all can stand up for the reading of God's Word. It's been a week. I'm a little rusty. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. In accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. The grass withers, the flower fades, The word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. You see why I have to take that by itself. I mean, there's a ton of stuff kind of packed in there. Uh, I I titled the sermon, Onward Christian Soldier, because it's full of this military language. I charge you, Timothy, I have been chosen by God. I've been set apart. I've been called. If you look through Acts 13 to 16, you see that that's the work of the apostles. They would go. Hands would be laid on. They would observe uh, people ministering, sharing the gospel, teaching, and they would confirm, yes, this person is called to this ministry. And so Paul now is saying, Timothy, you're going to have to choose sides. 
really, uh, he is, he's, he's doing a couple of things here in asking Timothy to choose sides. He, he is definitely saying, Timothy, it's your job to shut them up. Timothy, it's your job that you don't let them speak in the gathering of God's people. Timothy, I know you're young. I know you're um, gentle. You have a weak stomach. You're timid. You're afraid. You're fairly new to this. Timothy, do not let these people speak and minister in the assembly of God's people. So that's one thing he's doing. But also, he, I think part of it is him saying, Timothy, don't you be infected by their teaching. Timothy, obviously, these people, they, they may be really good at explaining, convincing, arguing. Timothy, don't you fall into it either. The warning is for Timothy to warn the church, to keep the church pure, but also, he says it over and over again, Timothy, you must always be watching your doctrine and your life. What I charge you to charge them, it is always going to come first to you. The church is always going to face challenges. Matthew 7, Jesus, I don't know if he coins that term, but he talks about wolves in sheep's clothing. They're much more dangerous than regular wolves, right? A, a wolf in sheep's clothing, that whole concept means that something will sneak in seeming to be something else. Something will sneak in because something else that it looks like is accepted. And the church is always susceptible to this. Why? Because we accept people like Paul the Apostle. Right? We accept people like Paul the Apostle who spoke against it. We accept him into our midst. We're to accept atheists, agnostics, all kinds of people that don't agree with it. We're, we're to accept them and we're to love them. And, and so the church is susceptible to that. But that's the, that's the greatest threat. It's not wolves dressed in wolves clothing. Okay, it's not the, the outright, I hate God, I hate God's people. Um, uh, no, it's, it's not them. That, that, that's not who sneaks into the church. And I'll go one step further and I'll say sometimes a wolf in sheep's clothing doesn't know they're a wolf in sheep's clothing. Sometimes you have well-intentioned wolves. And so the apostle is saying uh, these external challenges, it seems that we don't face those as much, especially in our country anymore, because when we face those external challenges, oftentimes the church unites. Right? They would say that the, 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 the blood of the martyrs, if you heard this term, it, it's the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs. The church was built upon the blood of the martyrs. Why? Well, because when your faith costs you something, all of a sudden, the wolves scatter. And, and Christ is witnessed in the death of martyrs and the suffering of his people. So, but the internal ones, they're tough. They're heartbreaking. We had a Presbytery meeting yesterday uh, the group of churches, about 20 or so, all of Oklahoma, parts of Joplin and Arkansas. And we discussed a couple of overtures 
changes to our Book of Church order. Now, if you go through our new membership class, I explain our Book of Church order. We call it the Big Blue Sleeping Pill. Uh, it's a giant volume uh, that talks about how we do church. And these specific overtures had to do with the allowance of certain identifiers amongst ministers of the gospel. And it appears that our denomination is in a fight. And it's about 50-50. Now, the fight's not that simple. It's not we're for this and against this. Some of it has to do with how is it worded? How is it addressed? How do we follow up? How do we... All these things. But what we can't do in the midst of conflict is be Switzerland. Can't be Switzerland. Now, most of you know what I mean by Switzerland. Uh, Switzerland, uh, occasionally, even in my pastoral counseling, I'll look at a man and say, be Switzerland. And that means be neutral. Don't choose a side on this one. Be neutral. Don't give your opinion on this one. Be Switzerland. Or try to be Switzerland. In the church of Christ, there really isn't room for Switzerland. You know why? Because uh, allowing something to happen because you've silently left a conversation, you've not surrendered, but you have. So the sermon and sentence this morning is when it comes to issues of faith and conscience. This is what he's saying to Timothy. Timothy, when it comes to issues of faith and conscience, Switzerland is not an option. You cannot remain neutral, Timothy. You have got to get into the fight. You have got to engage. Now, we're gonna, who knows what we're going to be faced with Ukraine and Russia, right? I mean, I, I, when I think about Switzerland, I think, what if Russia was at their border? Right? What if Russia was at their border and all these troops were piled up there? Do you think Switzerland would say, hey guys, we want all the all to be like us? No. Right? Switzerland. I mean, it's just a step below Canada, right? Sorry, Canadians. But who's going to invade Canada? Right? They're not going to invade Canada. Why? Because of their southern neighbor. Who's going to invade Mexico? Right? They don't need any kind of B1s, B2s. They don't really need much of a military, right? Who's going to invade? Right? Because there's someone there that's got them. For the Christian, Switzerland is not an option. And so Paul uses these military words. He says, this charge. He's also said it in verse 3. In verse 5, he says, I've heard you, I urge you. These are military words that Paul is saying to Timothy. I charge you. It, it is like a commander saying, I don't care how many are lost, we have got to take that bridge. I don't care how many are lost, we've got to take that bridge out. That hill, we must occupy that hill. And if you all lose your life on it, it's worth it because taking that hill is the mission. And Paul is saying, Timothy, I urge you to fight the good fight. Now, in this sermon, I'll, I'll talk about when Paul, in 2 Timothy, you know, at the end, that's what he says. I fought the good fight. And I was talking to you all this morning in the intro. I said, I mean, that's how I kind of looked at my dad. Was he perfect? No. Was he a perfect father? No. Not by a long shot. And he would tell you he was not a perfect father. 
but he fought. And he fought a good fight. And as he laid in bed wrestling, he was ready. You know what he going to do with the crown? He was going to put that crown at Jesus' feet. We're going to wear that crown around in glory as if, hey, look what I accomplished. No, he was going to put it at Jesus' feet. That's what we see when we sing that, that hymn, isn't it? Casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. Cherubim and seraphim falling down before you. What is it saying? Every good thing that we have wrestled through in this war against the forces of darkness and sin, every good thing is, is this beautiful trophy of glory that we give to our God. And that's what he's saying, Timothy. Three things we'll just look at this morning quickly. Switzerland's not an option. And because of that, you must therefore hold on to the faith with a good conscience. And part of that will be naming names. First of all, Switzerland's not an option. We've talked about that. Um, uh, Switzerland in 1815 signed this treaty. They're going to remain neutral. World War II, they're neutral. Um, for some of us, it frustrates us. If you're living in Switzerland, I think you probably like it. <laughs> We've been declared this way for a couple of hundred years, so don't expect us to help you out. You can definitely leave your money in our banks, though. But it's as if Paul is saying there is a war going on. And Christian, that war is still going on. Right? I don't know if you followed the news. And again, it's hard nowadays to know what to believe. But it would appear that Russia wants to invade the Ukraine. And we see these satellite pictures and all these troops. And yet we have Putin saying, oh, we're not going to invade. Okay, we'll try to believe that. We'll try to believe that. What, what are they doing now? They're having a picnic? Um, but one of the things the enemy wants to do is convince us there's no war going on. That, that there, there is no war. Students, the enemy wants to convince you that he is not after your soul. That he is not after you to ruin your life. He is not after you to ruin uh, all that has been given and invested in you. He is after you. There is a war for your soul, and it's, well, it's for all of us. But um, he tries to convince us that everything's okay. Let's just all get along. Let's just be sweet to one another. Switzerland isn't an option. Here's what's also beautiful about that is you think about this relationship that Paul has. He's called him his son earlier in chapter 1, and now he says, my child right? and it's not condescending it is endearing I am not sending a conscript to war Timothy I'm not sending the poor class that need to do it for a job I'm sending my son I'm sending my child now those of you who had kids I'm sure there's been times where you felt that the first time you drop them off at whatever school you choose to put them in. And if it's a Kuiper kid, they're happy and mom's a basket case, right? My baby, who's going to love my little pudding like that? You know, I mean, my child, Timothy, my child, you got to enter the war. You've all heard me tell these jokes about Luke. When Luke joined the military, of course, he sits in an office somewhere on a computer, but he would use the fact that he was in the military to get mom to make him cookies. Right, right, and so now I, I, I don't. I mean, it 
it, it is what it is at the Kuiper family. Whatever Luke does, we always say, and thank you for your service, you know, now, because he hates it. He's like, all I do is sit at a computer, okay? I, I've not risked my life at all. Um, but that sense of relationship, but it's even more than that. He, he, he points out what we would call ordination. It'd be what we, we would call ordination now in our day. He says, Timothy, don't neglect the gift you have. We don't really know exactly what that was, but it appears that there was this prophecy upon him, and we see this several times, even in Acts. Uh, don't neglect this gift, prophecy that was given to you when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So I prayed for Resurrection Church this morning. Good friends of ours, Dan and Kirsten Myers, live with us in, in uh, um, Missouri, planting in California. Um, this morning, their church will have the laying on of hands. Officers that have been tested, congregation that has voted, a presbytery that has tested, confirms, yes, these men are holding true to the faith with a good conscience. We are laying hands on them in the congregation, and we are declaring these men set apart for this job. That happened in April of 2018 at Three Rivers. It's a big day for us. After over a year of training and asking questions, Hands were laid. Prayers were made. Timothy, you were ordained for this. This is part of your job. So in The Patriot, you may not know, there's, there's a couple favorite scenes I have in The Patriot, but maybe my favorite is when the pastor takes the gun. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm supposed to protect the sheep. You know, and so sometimes that means killing the wolves, right? I mean, I, I, I love it because I, it always seems, it seems to me that every time a, a preacher or a pastor is depicted in Hollywood, it's always a sissy. And um, I don't get that from Paul. I don't get it from Timothy. I don't get it from John. I don't get it from Peter. You know, I, I get these, these are uh, men who are convicted that what they're doing is right and true, and they'll take the hill. And if it costs them life, then praise God for that. Timothy, hands were laid upon you. You have a responsibility. You cannot remain quiet while there are wolves in the church. You can't. I love you. It's dangerous. It's warfare. Uh, Paul speaks as one who was beaten, dragged, left for dead. Timothy, you can't be Switzerland. How do you not be Switzerland? Well, that's part of what the whole letter is about. Timothy, you hold on to faith with a good conscience. These two treasures go hand in hand. And it's beautiful the way that the Bible weaves this in all throughout the Scriptures. What you believe when it is true, it, it calms your conscience. The truths of our gospel calm our conscience. It's confirmed in our conscience. So I like the way these two things are separated. Uh, one is an objective treasure. One is an objective truth, the faith. This is it, Timothy. These are the trustworthy sayings. Here's what should be relied upon. This is what should be said. Don't allow anyone who doesn't affirm to these true words and sayings. This is the faith passed on to you. You're entrusted with this faith. You're going to hand it on to other people who are also entrusted to hand it on to other people. One of it is objective. We get that by studying God's Word. We get the truth 
by studying God's Word. And you missed the Sunday school lesson this morning. I mean, it, if you're able to, you should come. Scotty did this great lesson on Genesis, and he talks about God is giving us the truth. We're to believe it. Genesis, what a great start. Makes sense of everything. I love it how it stands up. I was burning wood the other day. I don't know if it was Madison was out there. I was burning part of the couch's cabinetry. Well, the leftover pieces. And I said, isn't, isn't wood amazing? You know, matter supposedly can't be created nor destroyed. And yet our God made out of nothing something that can't be made or destroyed. Isn't it amazing that God would take something for a primitive man like a piece of wood and he would store water and sunlight and power and heat. I'm going to store it in these things that grow by themselves. So when you get cold, you cut a piece of it off. And you warm yourself up. Don't worry, I'll keep growing more and more of them. Amazing. The truth uh, is the faith. Timothy, receive it, guard it, hold on to it. It is a treasure for you. Protect it, teach it, entrust it to others. But there's also this subjective treasure. Timothy, hold it with a good conscience. I love what Calvin says. He says, a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. A bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. By bad conscience, there's two things we can think about. A bad conscience is one that is malfunctioning. All right, so when we study Romans, he'll talk about that. There is a seared conscience. They, they call it a depraved mind that results in not knowing the difference between good and evil. Now, Christian, we expect people to know that, even in our culture. Uh, and and some people wandered so far away from the truth that their conscience is seared. They have managed to come up with all kinds of reasons to do evil things, wrong things, and not feel bad about it. Make excuses for it. Timothy, when you hold the faith, you'll have a good conscience. Uh, and, and so a bad conscience is either one that's not functioning properly or it's one that's functioning properly and you are suppressing it. And we do that all the time as human beings. We have every kind of reason to suppress the truth about ourselves and our own lives. And that's why for us, the gospel isn't just great news on day one of salvation. It's great news for all of your salvation and all through eternity because it alone gives us the power to not suppress our conscience. When your conscience is working, Christian, praise God. There's the Holy Spirit knocking on your door and saying, do you know how you feel wrong about that? That's me. Confess it. Repent of it. Believe. Turn. Timothy, the way you're going to combat is, first of all, making yourself right. Holding on to the faith with a good conscience. Belief, behavior, they go hand in hand. Conviction, conscience, they go hand in hand. The intellect and your morality go hand in hand. They are so closely connected. Timothy, I'm giving you the true faith. I'm giving you sound words. I'm giving you trustworthy sayings. I'm giving you creeds. 
hold on to them. The greatest weapon against false doctrine is the truth, knowing what the truth is. So when we make statements in church history, we make statements, they are always statements, they're creeds that are attested by scriptures, and they say, this is what is true. You know why we say this is what is true? Because in the Council of Nicaea in 325, they had no idea that a couple thousand years later, boys would declare themselves as girls. They had no idea. Right? But when a new test comes, the church has to respond in truth. We have to answer the culture in the area and in the manner that they are attacking the truth. And so if we see new creeds come out, we see new statements of faith being orchestrated, it's not that the faith is new, it's that somehow the enemy has found yet another way to try and attack what is true and what is right and what is good. And the church must respond and say, no, this is what is true, this is what is right, this is what is good. Greatest weapon against the false doctrine, Timothy, is knowing your Bible. What happens sometimes with Christians is uh, the wandering of our morality, the searing of our conscience. It actually, it actually tempts us to change the faith, our experience. I feel this way. The Bible says I shouldn't feel this way. Well, let me try and reinterpret the Bible out of my experience so that I feel this way. Again, that's what Scotty was pointing out in Genesis. You know, it, it, it says this is what is right and this is what is true. We don't interpret the scriptures based on our feelings or what the current culture is saying. We basically, we absolutely interpret the scriptures with the scriptures. At some point, though, Timothy, it's not just good enough for you to keep yourself from error. That's not enough, Timothy. And we think it is, and we probably feel good about ourselves if we keep our life and doctrine pure. But he takes it even a step further, and this is probably the step we're most uncomfortable with. He names names. He says, hey, uh, there's a couple guys in Ephesus Timothy, they have shipwrecked their faith and they could be the undoing to the work. Here's their names, Timothy, written down for thousands of years to Christians, and that's why we don't really find too many Christians named Hymenaeus. Alexander's a pretty common name, and we find that in other places, but he names names. Can you imagine doing that today? Right? You would be labeled a hate mongerer. You would be labeled, especially in issues of theology and faith, you would be called self-righteous. Oh, you think you know the truth, right? Paul says, Timothy, there's at least two people that I know of in that church. We don't know a lot about Alexander. In 2 Timothy, uh, we read about Alexander, uh, the coppersmith that did him physical harm. It probably isn't that guy. But just the fact that there are those guys that will physically harm you for teaching the truth. Uh, Timothy, there's two in there right now. Hymenaeus, we read about in 2 Timothy, he was teaching that the resurrection had already taken 
place. Now, we'll get into details later as he unpacks all of what, what you're supposed to believe and how you're supposed to hold it. But right now, it's kind of his introduction saying, Timothy, uh, there's a war going on. You can't be Switzerland. Uh, you've got to hold on to the truth. And you also have to name names. You have to say these people aren't welcome to teach in our church. Now, I feel like I do that every time I go on our YouTube channel because I'm amazed at how many heretics YouTube is trying to get following my sermons. I don't know what I'm saying, but it's like, oh yeah, do you want to watch this one next? No, I don't want to watch it next. And I also don't want anybody who watches mine to watch that next to think that we've approved of it. You feel weird doing that? You feel arrogant doing that? But it's everywhere in the scriptures. Every single church, every single letter, beware of false teachers over and over and over again. And so what does he do? He, he basically excommunicates these two people. He says, literally, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now that statement, similar statements to it, have been made by the apostle uh, before in 1 Corinthians in chapter 5 and verses 5 and 13, he does really the same thing. I'm handing someone over to Satan. And by that, we take that to mean our word for that would be, I am excommunicating them. They are no longer part of our community, our communion, our common faith. These men no longer belong to the household of faith. Do you know we do that in our church? We practice church discipline. Uh, the Reformers said that there are three signs of a church. It's interesting. What differentiates a church from uh, Young Life or YMCA or Canacuck what, what, or RYM? Or, uh, we'd say there are three marks. It's the preaching of the Word, the administration of sacraments, and the third one is the practice of discipline. That's what he's talking about here. Church discipline. Uh, Timothy they need to be excommunicated. But there's a purpose behind it. And there's always a purpose behind church discipline. If you read that big blue sleeping pill, you'll find out that the PCA has, a church, has reasons behind its discipline. The number one reason is the reclamation of the sinner. Is to tell them, you may not know this, but you are walking in heresy and we're not going to allow you to teach it anymore. You may not know this, but your refusal to confess your sin and repent, it, 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 it appears to us from all that we can see that you are not acting as a Christian. Now again, people talk about this. What does that mean? When I sin, I'm excommunicated? No, we all sin. When you don't repent of your sin, you're excommunicated. Because that's what Christians do. We repent of our sin. We own up to our sin. And, and so um, he excommunicates them. And so it means this. It means he's being sent. They're being sent from the community kind of back into the world. And so when he says hand it over to Satan, it's as if you've gone from the, the protection of a community back into the world that is dominated by people who follow the evil one. Now, the closest thing I can think of this is I, I had a kid in our youth group in Virginia, and he was obnoxious. He went to the Christian school, he came to our youth group, and everybody was nice to him. And he was obnoxious. And girls were really nice to him. And every time anyone was nice to him, he thought they loved him, and it would get even worse. He was obnoxious. He was always complaining, 
always frustrated. And finally, his parents said, that's it. We're going to send you to public school. And when he was obnoxious in that public school, nobody was nice to him. He, he, he changed 180 degrees. It was this amazing change when he realized we were being kind to him because of the gospel, not because he deserved it. We are being kind to him because our God in Christ is abundantly kind and good to us. It changed this kid's whole world, saying, I'm going to be treated like I deserve <laughs> in the world. I really want to come back and be treated in grace. So they're being sent from the community of the church to the world. Uh, it is a radical treatment, but it is not permanent or irrevocable. Its purpose is twofold. I said the first is the reclamation of the person. So he says that they may learn not to. I'm sending you back out to, to the world. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians. I'm sending you back out to the world. The, the world will punish you. And I would say this to my kids all the time. Son, daughter, the world is a much tougher teacher than your God. But sometimes that's what it takes. Sometimes you, you have to be sent out into the world and fall flat on your face and feel the effects as much as possible in this life, the effects of your sin and your rebellion. And so he says, we're sending you back so that you would learn um, and, and, and learn not to blaspheme and be welcomed. And we know that that happens with that believer in the Corinthian church. Hey, he, was, he was committing these sexual immoralities that, were, that the apostles said, you know, we don't, they don't even do that in the pagan world, and you're doing it in your church. You're, you're absolutely acting and living as if you don't belong. Go to the world. And it breaks his heart, and he comes back and repents. And they're told to receive him. The second thing, though, is for the purity of the church. Timothy, they, they, need, they need to be sent away because what is taught when the body of believers gets together, it has to be right and true. You know, our prayer, I think Jake's prayer, every pastor that gets up here, Lord, help me to teach what is right and true. Correct what's wrong in my thinking. Please don't let me bring anything above what your word teaches. Timothy, that's the fight. You can't be Switzerland. And I'm telling you, Christian, you can't be Switzerland. You can't live a life isolated. You can't live a life that says, I'm going to be neutral. It's not enough. Just that you know and believe what is right. We must enter the battle and be willing to name names. Jesus didn't stay in Switzerland. He took the fight that we had picked. He entered the fight that we had picked against God Almighty. And sinning against His rule and His authority, we blasphemed Him in every way possible. And Jesus did not remain neutral. He took God's wrath that was meant for us. He defeated the chief of wolves. He defeated death and Satan and sin. He defeated on our behalf. He's our champion. And he calls you and says, come take the fight.
with me. The battle is mine. I have won. And yet I am inviting you into a glorious battle. The beauty about being a Christian, when you leave the, the kingdom of darkness and you come into the kingdom of light, I love the way Tim Keller says this. He says, you've, you've left, in a sense, a battle that you can't win. If you don't follow Christ, the, the enemy is, is after you. He will convince you he's his friend, but he is after you to destroy you, and you're in a battle you can't win. When you come into the kingdom of light, you're in a battle still, but you're in a battle that you can't lose. Our king has gone before us, and he has declared victory. And he says in his life, join that battle. Here's the beautiful thing. Um, the way 2 Timothy ends, and, and I'll read this to you in closing. He says uh, in 2 Timothy 4, the apostle writes Timothy, and he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Okay, that's that ceremonial, sacrificial, Levitical. My life is being poured out. Uh, isn't that interesting? It's just like it's just being drained. I am being poured out. My life is ebbing away from me, Timothy. The time of my departure has come, he says. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. The faith. Remember, extremely important. Timothy, I've kept that faith. I've held on to it. Henceforth, he says, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you that you don't send us into a battle without weapons. You don't send us into a battle without support. But, Father, that your spirit, the buckle of truth, the word of God, the helmet of salvation, they are ours in Christ. There may be many of us here this day that do not feel like we are an onward Christian soldier. We feel like we have been on a furlough. We have tried our best to set up a Switzerland, surrounded by beautiful mountains, promising not to hurt anyone if they don't hurt us. And we think that we've glorified you in this. And Father, please forgive us. May we be overcome by our captain, our victor, what Christ faced for our salvation and how he asks us in some small way to copy him, to take the truth into a world and to be willing to suffer. Father, we don't take this call lightly. We pray for your wisdom. The whole idea of naming names is so uncomfortable for us. And so will you lead us gently, Father, making us certain of your truth. And Father, will you now, through this sacrament, set apart the bread and the grape juice, Father, will you set it apart for us that it may wash us it may cleanse our cowardly heart. It may spark in us a new and fresh desire to spread your gospel. Some of us, Father, we just fear being laughed at. We fear that people will point out things in our lives and say, well, you're a Christian, but you've done this. Oh, Father, may we see that every moment that gives us a reason to boast in your goodness. May we be like the Apostle Paul that says, oh, yeah, you have no idea what I am capable of. You have no idea what I have done. And that's why 
The abundance of God's mercy means so much to me. So Lord, we thank you for the sacrament. We thank you for the truth. We thank you for our conscience, Holy Spirit. Please come alive in a very powerful way. In our minds and hearts, will you convince us and convict us? Convince us of our idolatry and our need. Convict us of the power of Christ in saving, rescuing. And remind us, Father, that your work is not yet done. Your word has said, not until all your elect are gathered in will you come back. And that you have chosen to use us in part of this work. Oh, Father, when you show us that hill and you charge us to take it, we pray that we would be bold. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.